Ash Olaf. Hi guys, welcome to the symposium and another episode of You Can't Podcast with Kids. I'm delighted to be joined by the boys. Uh, how are you guys? I mean, not in the best mood, you know. What's yeah, up? That's, that's our season over. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, go, it flies in the face of your predictions from last week, Carl. I know. <laughs> Every single prediction was wrong. Arjun, how, how are you doing? Yeah, um, I'm in a good mood after last night, our 3-0 win over Watford. Mm. Um, yeah. Went well. Obviously, since we last spoke, we also lost 3-2 to West Ham, which basically ended our chances of um, getting to third place by this weekend, which was annoying. But it's classic Chelsea, to be honest. Bl- yeah. blow, blowing chances to do well and then um, doing well when we ha- absolutely have to. Mm. And so, Lawrence, how are you? I mean, you're probably in high spirits. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we United looking fantastic, scoring ridiculous goals, and all the teams around us dropping points. So it's pretty much perfect for me. That's good. And uh, yeah, I mean, even the Wolves yesterday got a uh, got a beat, got a lost to Arsenal. So um, yeah, it seems to be going well for you. I guess we should just jump straight into it then. So uh, Arjun, if you want to talk about some of the games from midweek or yesterday that particularly caught your attention, or just more generally across the league. Um, what were your impressions and how do you feel about, about this latest game week? Um, so, um, personally, I, I, I only watched the Chelsea-Watford game last night as I was quite busy the whole day. Um, yeah. It was a very good game. Um, Watford didn't really offer much at all, to be honest. They were pretty abject. Um, and Chelsea made it comfortable for themselves. They dominated possession. Um, I was really impressed by Christian Pulisic, who for the third game in a row um, was pretty much outstanding. Um, through the penalty that William converted mm-hmm. and um, he's showing signs of being the Hazard replacement that we didn't expect him to be um, and it's just really impressive he's given me sort of Hazard vibes from like 2012-2013 where he wasn't anywhere close to being one of the best players in the world but he was dominating the conversation in terms of best wingers in the league and um, he's sort of getting his name out there Um what I was quite upset by and quite surprised by was the fact that Lampard seems to have frozen out Jorginho pretty much completely. I don't know what's happened there, whether there's been a breakdown of relations between them or whether Jorginho has sort of expressed his desire to leave. But since the restart, he hasn't played at all. And last night, Kante sort of hobbled off injured with about 10 minutes to go. And Lampard chose to bring on Billy Gilmore instead. And mm. Jorginho was just left sort of sulking on the bench. Uh, and there was a great image of him just sort of staring stony-faced um, at the floor whilst Lampard sort of was in front of him, um, intent on bringing on uh, Gilmore. And it's quite sad for me because, personally, Jorginho was one of my favourite players in the squad last season, um, was a vice-captain for us, and now seems to be heading out the door, um, which is quite upsetting. Do you mind too much in the sense that Gilmore's a very, very high-quality prospect and he deserves getting some game time and... In terms of Jorginho, often I just see him really taking penalties and not doing much more. So um, do you feel like it will be a massive loss in terms of your squad? Um, in terms of um, playing 11, it may not be a massive loss, but in terms of squad morale, he's, he's been excellent for sort of getting, getting the morale up. Um, he's a very good leader, hence why he was made vice-captain. But I also think a reason why he potentially might be sold is to sort of clear out funds for the Kai Havertz possible transfer. Mm. He's the, out, out of all our midfield options, he's the oldest. Um, so I think that it makes sense, I guess, from a financial standpoint to to clear him out. But also, we were sort of looking at Ross Barkley um, potentially selling him as well. He's been in great form in the, in our in his last ten Premier League starts. He's scored four goals and made two assists, which is quite phenomenal considering um, last night was the first game he st- first time he started three games in a row for Chelsea. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I wasn't really expecting Jorginho to be frozen out this way. And so I'm unsure whether, whether he himself has requested a transfer or whether Lampard is intent on selling him and, and just doesn't want to play him. I think when Jorginho first signed uh, into the Premier League under Maurizio Sarri at Chelsea, he was like seen as sort of the linchpin of, of his whole system. Yes. And... Uh, I think he broke a number of records with like number of passes in a match. <laughs> um, 
but then there was this sense I think that he he didn't really suit the Premier League and, and many teams actually just targeted him in, in a lot of games so perhaps and I, I don't think he's sort of shrugged off that tag as kind of maybe a weak link in the midfield and as you said if they're trying to clear out the squad then Chelsea have a number of options in midfield and a reunion with Sarri at Juventus seems like a logical move to me yeah and it's quite surprising so about I think half a year ago he said well I guess when Sarri left he said that he wanted to be known as Chelsea's Jorginho instead of Sarri's Jorginho because there was sort of links about him being Sarri's right-hand man hence why he was being deployed so much by Sarri but I don't know I think you're right he was sort of out muscled off the ball particularly against Bayern Munich in the 3-0 home loss he was very ineffective then and there seems to be a criticism that he only sort of dominates against the smaller teams. And in the big games, he's a bit of a make-weight and can't really um, assert himself physically in, in the midfield. I mean, taking it more broadly then, do you think that Chelsea have adequate options in midfield to cover his departure as a squad player? Oh, definitely. I think we have a, a valuable amount of midfield options. So looking at yesterday, we have Kante and Mount who are sort of undisputed starters now. Barkley seems to be playing more in the first 11 but then we also have Loftus-Cheek, Gilmore, um, potentially Havertz as well and we have youngsters such as Conor Gallagher who's on loan at Swansea and doing very well Um, so I think we have quite a lot of options and I don't think there's a sort of worry that if Jorginho leaves we'll be um, lacking in options in the midfield so Mm. I I don't think there's a worry there. Um, I wanted to just kind of ask you then more broadly what went wrong against West Ham? I mean, I don't know. I mean, we just were really bad, to be honest. We didn't play that well at all. We we didn't keep the ball well. Um, when we took the lead, when we went one all up due to Willian, we just sort of were ineffectual, hence why we conceded basically a couple of minutes later. Um, West Ham had more more to play for. They had they were fighting for their lives, and we sort of didn't really take advantage of the fact that we could have gone third um, with the win. And it was just a really poor performance. But I, I'm, I'm inclined to sort of shake it off as a blip, seeing as since the restart we've uh, won four games and only lost that one. We've played generally quite well since the restart. I'm inclined to just look at it as a blip. And, a, and due to other results, such as Wolves losing last night, that sort of has negated the loss against West Ham. But of course, it is frustrating, seeing as we could have been in a much better position with that win. We would have been two points clear of Leicester in third if we had one. Mm. Um Cal, I guess I should direct to you. What went wrong against Sheffield United? I mean, where do I even start? Um, if we can start with, to be honest, their goals. I mean, under fives know how to mark players. We just didn't <laughs> mark players. Um, there's seven men in the, our, our box. I don't think we even got three men in our box but at the other end. So, you know, how are we going to score? Um, there was just no creativity, you know. The ball's just going side to side. What are you supposed to do? The ball's not going in the box. You can't score. Um, I do think the mentality, as Jose said in his um, post-match interview, just wasn't there. Like After that decision went against us, we seemed to crumble. Like We had the goal. That was 30 seconds in. You know, If that counts, we go on to win the game probably. You know, it's such a good reaction to the conceding. But yeah. Um, I don't know what we're going to do going forward. Like the season's over in my eyes. Like I mean, but Cal, to just to just to butt in, I think um, I don't know if if you can massively complain about the decision though. I mean, for context, it's the uh, ruling out of the goal for handball. Um, when that is literally, although you may disagree with the rule, like that is the rule and it is enforced pretty consistently that any contact yeah, yeah, with the hand, yeah, no, I agree. Even if it's the, accidental, negates, agree, negates the, the goal. Yeah, I agree. It's the rule, but um, uh, no, no, the reason it hit his hand. Like, he was fouled in the play. Uh, we didn't even get a free kick for that in the end. It was their free kick for handball. Like, surely it goes back to the earlier offence. But, yeah, I think agree it's a problem of the rule rather than, the, rather than you know, the decision being made. I was going to say, though, does it show perhaps a more endemic problem with Mourinho that something that he was always so good at, i.e. defence and marking, is something that you've identified as a major flaw in, in the last game? Yeah, I don't think it's Mourinho's fault, to be honest. I think, you know, we needed players to come in uh, and it's just not happened. And now we've just seen the result of it. 
Well, I mean, I guess I direct it to um, Lawrence. I mean, what are your thoughts on the Spurs performance and even the Chelsea performance against West Ham? Because those are perhaps quite surprising, although perhaps Sheffield United against Spurs is is a far more is, is a fixture with far more parity than it than we would have expected it to have maybe this time last year. Um, but what did you think went wrong in those games and and maybe direct it perhaps to United, which is, I guess, what you want to talk about. Why are United able to withstand um, those kind of games after lockdown? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not just a United fan. You know, I could talk about all kinds of clubs if you want. But yeah, yeah um, I, I think the two matches um, that we've discussed so far, uh, well, we're going to discuss Sheffield United and versus Tottenham and, and Chelsea v West Ham were, were games that Champions League hopefuls drop points, but for very different reasons. Um, Sheffield against Tottenham, I think at its base, Tottenham have such poor qualities. I mean, they're they're a shadow of the team that they were two years ago, and players that have been retained from that team just seem to have lost quality. I mean, I'm not sure if Deli Ali played, but he's uh, an example yeah. of a player that is just. I don't know. He showed a little, little glimpses of quality this season, but he's just nothing like the player that he was when he, yeah. you know, first came into the Premier League and and scored, you know, some fantastic goals. Uh, and I think Tottenham just don't have the quality right now to seriously call themselves like a, a top six team, um, uh, which is why I, I guess last week we were talking about, um, you know, players like Kane potentially leaving the club. You, mm. Uh, I wouldn't blame him at this point anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he deserves I, to win something. Like, and if he's not going to do that at Tottenham, he's got to do it elsewhere. For sure, for sure. But when you talk about the West Ham Chelsea game, uh, watching that, I personally felt that Chelsea dominated the game and should have finished it off before before um, the injury time winner. Mm. Um, I think that well, what's interesting about the Premier League is that we've had a lot more sort of two-sided games than we have seen in other leagues um because whilst you know uh Chelsea were dominating possession dominating chances you, you did get the feeling that West Ham were always, always had something in their pocket you know mm. um so I, I think I think in terms of like why the two teams lost Tottenham and Chelsea Chelsea can sort of hold their heads up high I mean the defending for the final goal was just horrible i don't know what rudica's doing just allowing yarmolenko onto his left foot and yeah i don't even remember. i mean that's alonso, classic him yeah and also alonso running back of course that's a long yeah time i mean he got he got absolutely slated in, on sky sports yeah kind of funny I mean, but, uh, yeah i just want to go into a reason why i think we we failed against west ham is our defending from corners is absolutely shambolic mm-hmm. um a stat came up in the watford game last night that in terms of corners faced um goals um conceded by corners we, we're bottom in the Premier League and I did a bit more research this morning and we're actually second worst in the in in the top five leagues um the only the only team we're better than is the French team Amiens a team that got relegated this season um yeah. what, what do you put that down to inexperienced centre-backs or it's height apparently like apparently yeah have... not just height but also um the wrong players marking um players at corners so we um, in, the, in the West Ham game, we had Azpilicueta, who's like five foot eight, marking the six foot two Thomas Suchek and, <laughs> and one other player at the same time. Whereas Tammy Abraham, who's a pretty tall striker himself, um, was on his own at the far post, marking no one. So I think Lampard and the defensive coaches have to sort of work more at corners, um, deploying the right, the right defenders or the right um, markers to the attacking players when, when defending corners, because otherwise... I don't really feel confident at all whenever we defend corners or indeed any set piece. Um, and also you've got Kepa who at six foot isn't isn't the tallest for a goalkeeper. Um, and he, does, he doesn't really seem that authoritative when it comes to claiming corners mm. or, or commanding his box. So I think that is a, a definite weak thing of Chelsea is the defending from set pieces. I was going to say that Kepa gave me strong vibes of De Gea early on yeah. in his career in the Premier League. But De Gea, yeah. he had this kind of meteoric transformation into this beast out of nowhere because he used to be pushed around. You know, I remember Rio Ferdinand once passing the ball to him in a back pass and De Gea, you know, struggling. And 
I think it might have been the pressure or I'm not sure, but but he managed to obviously transform himself and then pull off some quality saves over many years. Well, De Gea literally beefed up. Yeah. Like he he, he got physically ready for the Premier League. And if you see the the corner goal from Suchek in the Chelsea game, Kepa's like getting blocked by his own defender. And and, and he's just trying to get through and he, he can't. I mean, you... That that's the kind of thing that would will will concede you a goal in the Premier League. So and, and I mean like yeah. the thing about De Gea comparison is that he um obviously as Lawrence said put effort into beefing up and then changing his game maybe being more assertive. But Kep has been in the league now for over a season and I've not seen much kind of progress in that sense. Um, especially considering the price tag. I think as a Chelsea fan, if I were one, I'd be disappointed. I think I mean, that would, yeah. I'd argue and, it's a flop. Yeah, I mean. For goal, for lots of players, you can make the stats versus the eye test argument. So some players look good but have poor stats. Some players look bad but perform quite well statistically. Whereas mm. I think Kepa sort of performs badly in both on both those spectrums. He has poor stats. He doesn't really pass the eye test. He doesn't look commanding at all in the box. And a number of a number of people who coach keepers for a living have sort of pointed out the flaws in his game. Um, so I'm not really sure where we can sort of defend him. He has he pulls out world class saves, but these are very few and far between, mm. and then they're, they're not they don't really occur enough um, for him to justify a place in the team or squad. I guess on that, I guess he kind yeah. of reminds me in a bad way of Mignolet when he was at Liverpool, uh, just in the sense that Mignolet was pretty good from like short shots less than ten yards away, reflex saves. He was pretty good at those. But he was crap overall, just a general ball handling, long shots, assertiveness in the box. Like, he always has mistakes in him. Um, and Kepa kind of gives me those vibes in that maybe he's not as garishly mistake-prone. But he lacks a similar authority in the box from set pieces. He um, always seems to have errors in him. And he simultaneously seems to be a pretty good short-range reflex saver. Um so I think those are kind of comparisons, and those are, that's not a particularly good comparison to draw for, from a Chelsea point of view. But I mean, moving forward, I guess we should, I guess I can't really avoid it any longer, and we probably should touch on the 4-0 Man City drubbing of um, Liverpool. <laughs> and I guess the place that I'd start with this is just, I guess, contextualising the game in the context of obviously winning the league the week before. I I don't think I agree with anyone that says that this game would have happened in the same way had we not won the league. And I think everyone can kind of see that that was maybe a major cause of the game. Um, What really kind of surprised me is the fact that City was still very vulnerable defensively in that Liverpool did nothing right in the final third. Opportunities in the box. They had many, many chances in the box, but they converted obviously none of them. Couldn't get their feet in order, couldn't finish. But every single time, you know, one of the midfield three or, or or the fullbacks put a ball over the top, we looked like we could score. And I've been seeing like all these bloggers and podcasts saying City absolutely dominated the game, you know, the midfield pivot and then De Bruyne running through. Like on the attacking side of the game, I think I'd agree. Like Liverpool's defence, especially Joe Gomez, was absolutely nowhere. But on Liverpool's attacking sense, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. And I and I put, you know, City's clean sheet far more down to Liverpool's own inability to finish clear cut chances. Well, than City, bloody yeah. Yeah, than City's defensive prowess in the sense that I think City is still a centre-back, a quality centre-back away from maybe the league again. And honestly, if Man United keep going at this pace, I'd actually put them closer to City just because of the extent that City, even though they dominated midfield and could do whatever they want going forward, Liverpool legitimately could also do whatever we wanted going forward as well. And, and, and I don't think you can depend on other teams having unforced errors to mount a solid title challenge. I mean... Lawrence, what do you reckon? Okay, let, let's just first say that, as the kids say, City styled on on Liverpool. Yeah. I mean, uh, Phil Foden and De Bruyne are like one of the most beautiful players that I've seen in in a while in the yeah. Premier League. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. On to the negatives. I mean, uh, City clearly have defensive issues, and they have had for a number of uh, years. I mean, they were starting. Uh, Eric Garcia at centre back, right? <laughs> so I mean, who who the hell is he? Um, and and City have not had a settled pairing this season. I mean, uh, 
there's been Laporte, Otamendi, Stones, Garcia, Fernandinho, Rodri, and they've all been played in that position and Guardiola's gone, you know, chopped and changed around. Uh, it, it seems baffling to me that Guardiola, where he has so much depth in all other positions, he seems to refuse to buy, an, well, OK, he bought Laporte, but he's seems to refuse to buy a convincing centre-back to partner him. Uh, maybe he thinks that the system is so important that he has to find the perfect player. But in my mind, that stubbornness to refuse to replace Vincent Company, even though everyone knew he was leaving, uh, we had that knowledge for quite a long time, his stubbornness uh, not to replace him has sort of cost them this season's title for me. I mean, Liverpool have stepped it up a notch, but City have undoubtedly gone down 5 or 10%. Yeah, no, I agree. Obviously, not replacing company was a clear error. Yeah, um, and if, if City don't sign a centre-back this summer, uh, or sign a, 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 you know, a good centre-back, then I can't see them winning the title next season. Mm, no, I, that's why I, I said I, mean, I, I entirely agree. I mean, Cal, bring you in here. What are your thoughts on City's defensive issues, or maybe just the title challenge next year as it starts yeah. to pan out? The question is, is whether that European ban stands. Because if it does, mm. we've heard a lot it's of reports like certain players are leaving. You know, who's going to come? Mm. Like, sure, they've got the money and they can probably pay the wages. But the best players are going to want to play continental football. Yeah. And if they can't offer that, they'll go elsewhere. Yeah. No, I think I, that's a really important point. I mean, but just Argent- to sorry, Lawrence, carry on. Just to sort of answer your question about whether United can challenge. I mean, United's win whilst it looks convincing on paper, 5-2 against Bournemouth, it's very similar to the West Ham game in that we had like 70% possession. But mm-hmm. we gave away so many chances on the counter-attack. And it's, it's kind of worrying from a United point of view about just how frail our defence is. Uh, the first goal that we conceded was just... I mean, I've defended Harry Maguire, but he doesn't... <laughs> he can't... He has no turning circle. He <laughs> yeah. just gets Eight nothing by to be honest. Stanislas. And then De Gea gets beaten at his near post. Yeah, the near post is a big error. Go on, Cal, go on, talk to me about Maguire, Cal. Like, I'm not, I'm not, okay, Maguire, okay, fine, you get nutmegged, it happens, you know. Yeah. But get beaten at your near post, that is number one rule of a keeper, don't get beaten at your near post. Mm. Uh, and the fact that, you know, if you look where Stanislaus was when he took the shot, the angle's so tight, the only place it's going is the near post. Mm. He's not bending it into the far post from there, realistically. Mm. And so the fact that that was not covered by the hair, criminal. And then there's the fact that he, he nearly lets in another one, like I think it's like five, ten minutes later, at the near post again. Like you would have thought, okay, I've let one in at the near post, I'll learn from it. Nope, nearly does it again. I mean, Arjun, I, Arjun. Yeah. So I guess two questions then to you relating to that. One, how far are United away from a solid title challenge? And if they aren't there, where are they lacking? And then two, um, in a similar vein to how you analyse Kepa, where would you rank De Gea and do you think he's world class? Um, okay, on the first point, I think in terms of their attack, they're really strong. However, the, the links with Sancho are getting more and more concrete. Um, I saw today that he sort of agreed personal terms with United. I, I, I can't vouch for the validity of that source, but I, I think I think... In terms of where they're lacking, definitely um, in defence, they need they need a solid centre back to partner Maguire. I don't think Lindelof or Bay are strong enough, um, but I think they're getting there. Um, they're on the right track, um, and if they do add someone on uh, along the lines of Sancho to to what is already a potent attack, um, they should um, uh, reduce the gap to the likes of City, Liverpool, Chelsea. Um, in terms of De Gea, you can say yes, he's regressed. Uh, recently, in the last year or so, he's definitely making more and more errors, conceding more goals. But then again, how much of that is down to the defence? Mm. Um, that's in front of him. Um, I'd say is he amongst the world's best? I wouldn't, I wouldn't put him in my, um, put him in my top three. You've got mm. to look at someone like um, Allison or Black to Stegen, and they they seem to be the standouts right now. But in terms of longevity, and he's been at the top of the game for pretty much. A decade now um going back to his time at Atletico Madrid and when he joined United he's been amongst the best in the world um so you've got to give that to him but I wouldn't I wouldn't put him in my top three personally right now but then again it's so it's so subjective I mean how many of us watch 
um, the likes of Oblak and Stegen week in, week out. You don't. We don't. We just see the stats and we see the clean sheets. We see the, the amount of goals conceded per game. Mm. And we say, OK, another impressive performance by them. But we can't really judge um, these goalkeepers on anything but stats if you don't watch them week in, week out. No, I guess that's fair enough. I mean, moving into a Liverpool perspective in terms of the title title race, I I am getting more worried about the fact that we haven't signed anyone anyone substantial in a long time. I think that it would be dangerous to kind of rest on our laurels and just assume that this squad will perform to this standard next year. I mean, I discussed this with Lawrence before, and I do think that Liverpool are... Liverpool need to make at least some squad signings to back up the front three because I think the drop-off from the starting front three to Origi, etc., is quite high. And although we have depth in central midfield, I think um, we really, really desperately need a left-back cover as well for Robertson. I don't think we can deputise Milner in there anymore. Um, And yeah, we desperately need cover for the front three. It's kind of why I was disappointed about missing out on Werner when he went to Chelsea. And that, although he's a kind of different player to Firmino, he'd push Firmino and he'd be a viable option that that would, although requiring perhaps a slight change in system and tactics, we could sub in, you know, when, when Firmino wasn't playing well. And also, you know, he's versatile across the entire front line. Um, yeah. You, so that, it seems like that you kind of need good. some sort of young prospect that you can give yeah. a bit of playing time and, but who can, who can make an impact on you. Sort of like a Mason Greenwood, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I actually am optimistic about Rian Brewster at Swansea and similar to uh, kind of Arjun talked about Chelsea player that are, that's alone there. I think similar to him, Rian has performed really well. He's scoring goals. He's he's kind of dictating play. And he's I think he could be good as a squad player next year if we kind of move past Origi. But as, as cover for the front three, Rian can play across the front line. And I think he'd be decent there. And we've signed um, Curtis Jones to a long term deal. Just sorry, quickly, Arjun. Signed Curtis Jones to a long-term deal. He's the guy who scored that beauty in the Merseyside derby. And he seems a really, really talented midfielder. Um, although we have depth in midfield, I think that shows some decent academy prospects coming through, along with, you know, Harvey Elliott, etc. I mean, Arjun? Yeah, I was interested to hear your thoughts on the links of Thiago with Liverpool. Mm. So um, yesterday, the Bayern Munich chairman, um, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, said that um, Thiago basically is set to leave Bayern um, he looks like he wants to do something new again at the end of his career. Um, that's what he said. Um, and there have been links with Liverpool. What would you yeah. say about a signing like that? Quite no, a safe I'm, signing, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I'd be really happy with that because although some people would complain that he's get, he's getting old, I think he's 29. I think that's precisely the signing we need. We're in a win-now mood. We literally have one just now. And I think we can genuinely win two or three titles over the next five years if if we buy well and buy for now rather than always buying for the future. Although it's important to bring young prospects and I really would like someone like Thiago to come in with experience, experience of big games uh, to marshal, you know, midfield and he's quite a versatile player as well. Um, although it's a position in the squad, we have depth, a lot of depth in already. Um, so perhaps we maybe more need, you know, other areas to be shored up. I, I do think that Thiago is a solid signing just in terms of, showing the intentions of the club to perhaps go again next season. Um, I think the price tag, I think we were looking at somewhere around 30 million or just slightly above. And if coronavirus permitting Liverpool can afford that, then uh, I don't see any problem with that kind of, that kind of price tag either for a quality midfielder in his prime. Um, And and given, you know, sports science and physical regimes these days and James Milner, you know, consistently performing excellently age 34, I think that Thiago can have three very good years at Liverpool um, if we chose to get him. And yeah, I, I really like it as a statement of intent. Um, I mean, how do you, how do any of you perceive it from the yeah. opposition perspective? Yeah, I think as, uh, for Tot- like that sort of signing for Tottenham, as good as the players do is, our medical team seem to be having some problems. Like, you know, Deli Ali's mm-hmm. had two, that's three hamstring injuries in the last two, three years. Like, and you could argue that's maybe why he's not performing as well. Is but, that down to him, though, or to the medical team? Maybe it's just his own kind of... Well, he's situation. not the only one with hamstring injuries. That's the thing. Right. There's been quite a few players with hamstring injuries. You know, Kane's had quite a few injuries along the years. Uh, Eric Dyer, I mean, I think some of that was to do with his uh, operation. But even then, like, a lot of our players seem to get injured. Like, even coming back from the restart, we had Mora was injured. Lo Celso was a doubt. Like... We had a lot of time to, you know, recover and we still seem to have injuries. And, you know, after four or five years of watching, you know, key players out in key matches, you know, maybe 
time to point the finger, not just at the lack of investment, but also, you know, what's the medical team doing? Because you don't see the other clubs having the same problems. Mm. I mean, yeah, interesting. I, I, I guess kind of relating to, to Thiago, so in the sense that I actually have a lot more confidence in the Liverpool medical team than perhaps you do in the Spurs one, just because of the fact that we do tend to have players of, of that age still performing at a reasonable level. I'm not sure if that's down to coaching or to the medical team, but whatever it is, they seem to be doing well. But I think Thiago the other day posted on Twitter a picture of him and Coutinho, which yeah. I guess is a statement of intent. Um, I'd happily, to, I mean, relating to Coutinho, I mean, I'd happily have him back um, just because we make a massive profit on the on the sell buyback and um, whatever we pay for him. And he can also play across the front line in midfield. So he actually would be pretty good cover for the front three. I mean, he can fulfill the, the Firmino, role, Firmino role quite well. Um, he can play on the left and the right, uh, left wing or left midfield. So, I mean, yeah, I'd be happy to have him just because of his versatility and also obviously proven track record with Liverpool in the Premier League. But also, um, you wouldn't be surprised yeah. if like the likes of James Pearce tweets, tweets something like, oh, due to lack of funds, Liverpool won't be able to sign Thiago. They're no, exactly. Invest in exactly. the academy and yeah. trust yeah. that instead. I mean, um, the reason why I'm OK with that, I mean, I'm not exactly happy, but I'm, I'm vaguely OK with it because one, I think a lot of clubs are in a similar position. And two, I know it would have had Klopp's consent. So it's not doing stuff against the manager's wishes and may perhaps alienating him uh, because he, he kind of has the final word and him and Michael Edwards work together in that their, their, you know, cooperative team. Um and I think in early on in, in Klopp's career at Liverpool, we were going to sign Tejera, um, but the price tag was too getting too high and Klopp himself just pulled the plug on the deal, as he did with Fekir, actually. So um, I don't mind that too much because I think the manager will consent it. And, and, and I think building up the academy is perhaps important as well. Um, Lawrence, what are your thoughts overall? Well, um the issue with Liverpool, obviously, is um, diminishing returns. There's only so much you can do um, with the first team, whereas there are clear weaknesses in all of the other teams where they can sort of try and rectify that to yeah. catch up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, prem- the Premier League, it's, it's really difficult to retain the title. But I, d- I think that Liverpool's nature under Klopp, like the relentless character of the team, might mean that they they do it next year, but as for the year after that, you know, I think it's um, all it to play harder. for. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, think it's I, yeah. I mean, I, I do think we need signings, um, and I don't think it can be understated the difficulty, as you said, in retaining the title, regardless of the kind of mentality. Um, we we've almost retained, like if you consider last year was was a campaign that would have won the title any other time, and then we repeated it this year. And if we do it again next year, then I think four years. So the year after that, as Lawrence says, will probably be a year too many unless we do have substantial reinforcements in. Like someone like Coutinho, I think, would be a good signing just because he's hungry, because he's missed out on it. So he would add kind of a fresh mentality, you know, fresh desire to win, which I think the coaches have anyway. But he's just someone who would really bring that impetus back to the team. Um, I think then now we should move on to the next section of uh, where's Calvin? So, as you know, this is our weekly, or perhaps what thing we do every single time now, where Calvin is in a stadium in uh, the UK or in Europe. And we have 10 questions to guess where he is. So um, if you guys want to start. So Arjun, if you want to have question one. Um, is the stadium where you're at in the top two divisions of English football? No. Oh, okay. Lawrence? All right. Uh, is your stadium in the uh, top? Five divisions in Europe. Obviously, not the Premier League, but you. Know, yes. Basically. So football league, yeah. No. Oh, oh no. I was, I was talking in Europe, oh. like so. 
Yeah. Oh, well, I gave it that away. Well, you're well, giving that oh, away. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so right, he's in. The, so he's in the. He's in the football league. Um. So, is your stadium in League One? Yes. Okay. Arjun has. Um. Has the stadium been been a Premier League stadium at any point? Yes. Interesting. Lawrence, what Sunderland's? Oh, is it the Stadium of Light? No. Ooh. Okay. Uh, five. Five questions it, it, in. Is it Fratton Park? Yes. Arjun oh, wins again. There's well two out of two. That was my question, Arjun, but I gave it to you. Don't worry. Oh, sorry. Coming in with the <laughs> no, steal. Uh, don't worry. That only took six questions. That was good. Yeah, I mean, Fratton Park, throwback to when Portsmouth were in the Premier League. I remember it was always quite a hard place to go because their fans are quite intense and always quite on top of you. It kind of reminds me a bit of Loftus Road or Selhurst Park when those stadiums are always quite intimidating as well. It's Although, a very narrow stadium, yeah. the pitch. Yeah. yeah. And although that kind of Selhurst Park, especially, has perhaps lost that reputation, it was always a tough place to go. I mean, as a Liverpool fan, I can attest to that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, oh, under yeah. Harry Redknapp, Portsmouth yeah. were quite an animal, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Nico Kranjgar, you know, classic top <laughs> the players. Benoit yeah. Asuakotu. Yeah. Yeah. Well, didn't Peter Crouch once say that he was the one bloke who could used to have a packet of crisps before the game and just not abide by any of the sports science advice or dieting advice? <laughs> I can see that. I yeah. The game's changed a lot lately since then. Like back then, you could get away with it. No, even then, that was only ten years ago. But yeah. Okay, um, I think we should just move on then to our final discussion of this week, which is basically a touch on the controversial topic of VAR in the Premier League and abroad. So I wondered what you boys thought. Um, we saw that game straight after lockdown, the first game straight after lockdown, uh, which was Sheffield United game, where the goal, which was, where the ball, which was clearly over the line, was not given as a goal. I think some of the explanations were to do with the existence of a crowd or or otherwise. And I wondered whether... You guys thought that was a terminal indictment against the system or the fact that it was perhaps one error in four years doesn't make it too bad. Arjun, what are your thoughts? Yeah, see, the thing with that incident was that wasn't that an issue to do with goal line technology rather than with VAR? As in, the ball crossed the line and it's meant to send a signal to the referee to watch that, oh, the ball crossed the line or we didn't cross the line. So Mm -hmm. I I, I read that as being an issue with the goal line technology rather than with the implementation of VAR itself. But I think Calvin wants to speak on that. Yeah, so yeah, I agree it's an error with goal line technology, but VAR should be watching the game as well and they can see that it's gone in. Yeah, I think that, that point, was the point. Yeah, I think that was the point in that, yeah, they, they should be able to overrule the technology when it's obviously wrong. I think that was what a lot of people issued and that, the fact that they didn't do that, I think, was the problem a lot of people had. I mean, Lawrence? Um, well, the VAR chat comes in waves. So I think the first game of the season, there was a little bit of controversy, but... Yeah, I think it was mainly to do with the goal line technology because it, it was seen as infallible, right? There yeah. was like a really tiny margin error of like 0.0001%. But in, in a sense, that was seen as like a freak incident. Um, but then this this match uh, week, match, yeah, uh, has really sort of come out with a, a lot of VR, VAR bangers, to be honest. Like, uh, I mean, if we give the West Ham-Chelsea match, yeah, that was for example, a- I mean... Wow, so the West Ham goal was uh, disallowed uh, because Mikel Antonio was adjudged to be in Kepa's eye line, even though Antonio <laughs> was sprawled on the floor. He was helping him, <laughs> if anything, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> the shot. it was just ridiculous. I mean, and then, uh, I mean, we've already covered the, the Kane equaliser and Lucas Moura sort of being bundled to the floor and his hand hap- happening to hit the ball yeah. as a result of being fouled. Um and then we we can we can go on to the United game where I mean every goal that United scored was like a goal of the week but VR almost sort of like cancelled all of them uh, like Matic was almost offside for Fernandez's free kick and um, by Bai's uh, penalty yeah that was not a penalty in my eyes uh, yeah like the um, the commentator or the, they had like a referee on retainer the commentary mm. team and he was saying that i don't think it's offside because it's hits hits by his shoulder but then they do give a penalty and i think like okay the whole argument for having var was okay all of these decisions will be certain and there will be no more debate debate it's the final word in refereeing and but what you're seeing is that there's like clear debate still being had as to whether these decisions were right so is it worth having all this uh, 
lost it. Okay, I mean, there's no sort of there's less atmosphere now without the crowds. But mm. when when crowds were in the stadium, that whole waiting game for like two minutes to see whether it'd be a penalty or not really did take out the uh, sort of the suspense of like when somebody scores a goal, you're not really sure whether to celebrate or not. Is it worth losing all of that like footballing passion and character for decisions that may or may not be correct? I guess Lawrence, the um, reply to that, I mean, I'm not saying I disagree with you or agree with you, just I think the reply that they would make to that is that firstly, you have, we have the rules of the game for a reason and they should be enforced in whatever way we can. Like if you're offside, you're offside. Now, whether we change the offside rule to allow more attacking play you know, is another matter. And Graham Souness and um, Gary Lineker have spoken very eloquently on perhaps reforms we can do to that rule. But that's irrelevant to the extent that their argument is we have the rules, we should enforce them. And the fact that other sports, whether it's cricket or rugby, have scores which are, or, you know, in cricket, for example, a wicket or in rugby, a try, which are delayed in celebration just by, just by you know, video review. And that hasn't detracted from the drama in the sport. In fact, because of communication between the TMO and the on-field ref or umpire, the actual drama is enhanced because we don't, you know, and, and, and the people at home can watch the replays and stuff. And I think their reply would be, well, why can't we replicate that in football, especially considering football has far more resources and TV resources than those other two sports. I mean, uh, Arjun, where would you come in on this? I think with VAR, it takes away the human element um, completely. And I think that's what, what's necessary in, in a sport like football. But also my main gripe with VAR is that it halts the flow of the game. Um, there have been so many instances um, of VAR in the Premier League. So I, I was just doing some research just now while we are talking. 90, VAR has led to 96 overturns in the Premier League this season as of two days ago. Um, so it might not be completely up to date. Um, it's led to 25 goals, but disallowed 50 goals. Mm. Um, so it's taking away from the game, the spectacle, really. We want to see more goals in football, do we not? If people say, well... Um those goals are being taken away because they were scored illegally, then isn't that a job of the referee and and VAR? I mean, any team, as we all know, all of our teams at some point have been a victim of a goal that was scored either from an offside position or, or, or after a foul, and it was given anyway because there's only so much an on-field ref can do, and we always feel aggrieved. His, so, I mean, isn't VAR here, perhaps remedying that? The issue here is that, OK, the offside rule, OK, the armpit rule with offsides is is like annoying for some teams but at least it's a clear line yeah like, we can't disagree with a VAR decision about offside but yeah. when we're talking about something uh different like that Eric Bailly handball for the penalty yeah like it's not clear what VAR can do because the decision itself is very unclear even if you have 500 cameras yeah. and angles on it so if I, I agree that sort of for offside decisions it's very clear cut either offside or not offside but for you know other more contentious decisions like mm. for example diving and uh, and penalties it's it's more difficult to figure out um, even for VAR and it doesn't necessarily give the correct decision every time so my argument was okay maybe offside is fair enough um, but for those more contentious decisions where more angles don't actually help or or don't give the final word do we really need VAR for them? Yeah. So good add to this yeah so as i understand it rugby use it as if in doubt anything isn't awarded so if it's yeah. a try it's not awarded so, if yeah. it's a card it's not awarded and yeah. i think you like a, you could do you the have same a presumption you have a presumption of staying with the on-field decision in rugby yeah. and cricket and yeah as jose said in his like post-match interview the ref's no longer the ref it's actually whoever's at stockley park is really doing the refing now mm. and that score creates a big disconnect between you know players the fans I think, you know, because the person you see actually reffing isn't reffing. Yeah, there's still a human element, right? VAR mm. doesn't take the human element out of the game. It just changes the human that's making the decision. No, I think yeah, that's fair enough. Absolutely. I mean, I always I always had an issue with VAR in, from the premise of it in football, an issue that in, in cricket and rugby and in some parts of football, it's used, as Lawrence said, in an objective way. So offside or onside is an objective question, like you are or you aren't. Similarly, for if the ball crossed a line in football for a goal or crossed the line of the tennis court for being out or um, was hitting the stumps or wasn't in cricket or you know, it was a no ball or not in cricket or whether the ball was touched down over the try line in rugby. Like, although some of those have slight uncertainty, especially the try bit and the LBW bit, they 
have a roughly yes no kind of binary that you can adhere to whereas some of the issues that Lawrence has pointed out with VAR in football is that it's being used for contentious decisions like red cards or fouls or obviously you know penalties which are all I guess subjective and therefore or if the ref hasn't made a clear error in like just not seeing something such as you know uh, violence off the ball or whatever then I struggle to think how it's justifiable that VAR can get involved in, in foul decisions that the ref has seen. Um, Arjun? Um, yeah, but also in cricket, you have the slight difference where the players themselves can request something to be reviewed. They can yes. appeal to the umpire. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what would that be like in football, I was wondering? So if, if, say, the captain was allowed up to three challenges per, mm-hmm. per game and they could request the referee whether something was to be changed or not, because in football, it's just up to the referee. Or if he gets a word in his ear from the assistant referee to check something and players can feel aggrieved or, or delighted by his decision. But they don't really have any agency over whether they themselves can influence the referee. Whereas in cricket, it's up to them. They can decide um, yeah, yeah. You know, amongst themselves whether they want to challenge something. Um, I mean, I don't know. I wondered what, Lawrence, you kind of thought of that because you watch a lot of cricket. I mean, rugby, as Cal knows, because Cal watches a lot of rugby, um, it's not down to challenges it's down to just on-field refs decision to refer something upstairs um i mean lawrence what are your thoughts i think it's an interesting idea but it kind of and what's different between football and cricket is cricket they have like a really established process of how to review things so it all goes over in like a minute Mm. you know it's very quick but whereas football it's it takes quite considerably longer for some decisions and it's not communicated there's no communication between like the captains and var like nobody really knows what's going on they were just waiting for the decision so i think yeah, and also in football you can um you're not able to see what 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 you can see on the television if you're at the ground all you see is the check yeah. you're checking possible handball or whatever whereas in cricket they show the crowd who are in the stadium the entire yeah. process they show the replays the slow motion replays hawkeye drs etc ball tracking system but is that is that quite easily remedied in the fact that lawrence's criticism seems to be based on experience and process and that will be just improved as time goes on and then also it's not too much of a demand especially in the premier league to ask every stadium to have a big screen like i know anfield actually doesn't have one it has just a scoreboard with the team names and and they have kind of animations for when goals are scored but it actually doesn't have a big screen where you can watch replays I don't think it'll be too much of an ask for a club of that standing or for any kind of Premier League club, really, to put up screens in their stadium um, to make it kind of more like cricket so the fans in the stadium can get involved. I don't know. Carl, what do you think? Because with rugby, obviously, it's not like even like, like something like the championship won't have it really mm. up to a point. So like the argument, like, OK, yeah, you know, funding and whatnot, like, you know, it's not going to be consistent between the professional game and grassroots. I, I don't think that really passes, like, it's a reason not to use it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the problem with having, I suppose it's a bit different because of the culture, just uh, transparency between sort of ref and fans. Like, because obviously, if you show it, you're going to have a lot of complaints in football, whereas in rugby, it's just sort of built that culture of, like, respect for the ref and whatnot. Yeah, so, no, I definitely yeah, that's, agree that's with that. Like, yeah. the fans in football are much more volatile than cricket. I mean... And rugby like, as well. So, but I, I, I don't think that necessarily sort of should be used as a reason not to show the screen. Because, um, I mean, fans are going to boo the referee regardless if the decision goes against them. I think it's very important uh, just for the overall club, sorry, match atmosphere that we get the sort of knowledge of what is going on with VAR rather than just waiting for a decision. Um, and the way that cricket do it is, is I think, quite admirable. But it really doesn't solve the key issue that I, I was identifying before, is that the, the reason why people were so amenable towards VAR is because we saw the advantage of computer-assisted uh, decisions in, in goal-line technology uh, and thought, OK, we can transfer this into other decisions. Mm. But the, the key difference here, as I've said before, is that one is contentious and the other is not contentious. And uh, I think that the key issue with VAR is simply that you can't, uh, the debate is not ended. And if, yeah. if you can't solve decisions and have the final word, then in certain types of decisions, 
then I'm sorry, I I cannot support it. Hmm. I I guess that's a fair enough position. I mean, I always kind of wondered whether an issue, especially uh, specifically in England, was the fact in the Premier League was the fact that refs aren't allowed to look at the monitor. Because I always felt that the VAR used in the World Cup worked a lot better than in the Premier League. Uh, Arjun. Yeah, I agree. When they they actually went to the side of the, of the pitch and, and could see them, see it on the big screen, I agree. That was quite an innovative way of doing it. I think the whole process of VAR has to change um, the way in which it's, it's communicated to the fans in the stadium, the way it's carried out by the referee. I think I think it definitely needs a, a, a major overhaul. Mm. Um, I wouldn't scrap it completely, though. It would just change the way in which it's done. Mm. Um, but, I mean, today... And the next few days, there are inevitably going to be lots of VAR controversies in different leagues, not just the Premier League, and it, the debate will rumble on. Mm. And many of the points that we've made today, many of the points that many pundits and commentators have made, will continue to get echoed and said over and over again. And until there's an overhaul, it won't it won't really end. I don't think it's the positive mm. way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's fair enough. And yeah, I mean, Calvin, do you want the last word? Yeah, I just think they need to look at what they're doing with it because I, I don't know. I think in other countries it seems to work better. There, there doesn't seem to, to be as much, you know, controversy almost. Mm. And I don't know whether that's just because you know the fans are different, you know, between cultures or yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, they have had another season, right? They had yeah, few, like the Serie A Bundesliga. They had a season before us, so maybe with time it can improve. Well. I think on that slightly and carefully positive note, we should end and, well, hope that we do in the future have a VAR system that causes less controversy and perhaps actually works on occasion. <laughs> but yeah, I'd like to thank the boys. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on uh, You Can't Podcast With Kids on the symposium. Cheers. The Symposium with Ash Orlack.